I received this very cryptic email from you know someone who I think claimed to be affiliated with Robert Downey Jr. Typos in the message, you know, no logo. Again, very sus. Fast forward to the fall, like September or so. Um, now I get an email from someone who claims to be Robert Downey Jr. saying, oh, hey, like, you know, glad you're interested in talking. Like, you know, let's FaceTime. I said, oh, okay, all right, whatever. Here's my number. Um, just called me. Still kind of not truly, like, you know, believing what's going on. And then lo and behold, he FaceTimes me. I answer and it's in fact, like, it's Iron Man. It's Robert Downey Jr. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm going with the flow, and thank you, Falaron. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Go With The Flow. I have another very, very special guest with me. Anyone who takes the time out to sit with me, I'm always very appreciative of. And today we have Nicholas Johnson on the show. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. And so I just want to get right into things. Nick, I'm sitting amongst, well, sitting virtually amongst this steam company right now. Nick was the first, he was Princeton class of 2020, and he was the first Black valedictorian in the 275-year history of Princeton, which even still just saying out loud is kind of crazy for me to, to say and to even think about. So right off the bat, where, um, when and how did you find out that you were the, the val- first, just the valedictorian, and then we'll get into the, the caveat of being the first Black valedictorian? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I always love um, thinking back to, 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 to what that moment was like, because it was truly surreal. Um, so, you know, flashback to spring 2020, um, all undergrads had been kicked off of Princeton's campus. Um, I was, you know, finishing the end of my senior spring at home, which is Montreal for me. Um, so more or less a series of events where I got a phone call, um, you know, from Princeton, I picked up the phone and uh, it was Jill Dolan on the other line. Um, so already off the back, I'm like, okay, since when does, you know, Jill Dolan? <laughs> either either you're in trouble or right? it's something good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This, this, this can go one of two ways. Um, and I really don't know which way it will go. Um, and, um, you know, of course, she kind of you know, asked, oh, is this Nicholas Johnson I'm speaking to? I said, yes, of course, super excited to chat. Um, and she gave me that news over the phone. And it was really, it was really so surreal. I don't think it registered at first. Um, the first thing I did was I ran upstairs to tell my mom because my mom was also working remotely from home. My dad um, was actually still going into the office. So I told my mom, put my dad on speakerphone, shared the news with both of them. And um, it's actually quite funny because my mom takes like social distancing precautions super seriously. So she had quite literally refused to give me a hug in like the two <laughs> to three months that had passed since I'd gotten back home to Montreal. And when I got that phone call, but she was really just so overcome in that moment that, uh, you know, she broke that rule of hers and she just kind of embraced me. Um, so it was truly, truly incredible. Love that story. And as as someone who I like to say that my chances of being valedictorian were out of the door after my first round of midterms freshman year. Is that a call that comes out of the blue or do they give you some sort of inclination or warning that, OK, this is something that you're in the running for? How, 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 how did that how was that call for you? Um, so. That was the first interaction I had directly with Jill Dolan about the topic specifically about being valedictorian. That being said, um, so based on, I guess, my limited understanding of the selection process, 
um, all students that are being considered for the role do have to receive some sort of nomination from um, faculty that have either worked directly with them through coursework or through research. Um, so I had, I, I had previously had a conversation with one such faculty member um, who has very much been a mentor of mine, where he just kind of expressed that, you know, this is something that um, I was being considered for, but, um, you know, I did not, I didn't receive any more indication than that. Gotcha. And so then when did you find out that next caveat that, okay, I'm the valedictorian of Princeton University already by itself a huge accomplishment. Next, I'm the first Black valedictorian in Princeton University's history. When did you find that fact out? Because the way I found out was Menelik actually tweeted it. And I saw his tweet and I was like, there's no way this is like, there's no way there's never been a Black Black valedictorian in Princeton's history. And then people were talking about it in the Black Princeton group chat and then eventually it was confirmed. So when did you find that out? Yeah, um, so I actually uh, learned the same day that Menelik tweeted about it. (laughs) Um, So like more the rough series of events were that um so you know i was i was i was a uh, name valedictorian and my dad actually pretty quickly started like asking me if you know there had previously been black valedictorian in princeton's history and i didn't know the answer to that question and you know i was in the middle of finishing all my final projects finals are just around the corner like it wasn't something that i was going to really sit down and um and and, and look into um then i was invited onto the the we roar podcast um, that was, you know, kind of an initiative Princeton put together to try to build a sense of community during, during the time of COVID uh, among current students and alumni. And it was actually while they were interviewing me that they kind of first told me that I was in fact, like they had, like, um, they had consulted Princeton's archives and they had confirmed that I was the first Black valedictorian. And they kind of asked me live uh, during this interview for my raw reaction. And it was um, really... Uh, quite surprising to learn that in that circumstance. Um, so of course, after the interview, I shared that with with my with my family and with my close friends. Um, so Menelik just kind of like you know haphazardly chose to tweet about it as, as he does, and um, I think I think he did. I think he I think he put it out around like nine p.m. or so. He went to sleep. He woke up in the morning, and I had like. 10 to 20 missed calls from Menelik telling me that like this was blowing up, like, oh, you need to have a social media presence because I was not on Twitter at all. I was not on Instagram. Um, and yeah, he said like there are tons of reporters that are asking to, to speak with me. And blow up it did. I literally looked at the tweet yesterday and I believe it had something like 240,000 likes, which uh, is that's a lot of likes. And then, well, I'm going to get to the social media piece and the people who have reached out to you since, because that was a very smart call on his part to get onto Twitter and some of these these other social media. So shout out to Menelik. Didn't expect to be shouting him out as much in this podcast, but, but, but shout out to him. But taking one quick step back and just again, this is something that's very fascinating to me. Being the valedictorian of anywhere is not easy. High school, college, especially a place like Princeton. So now I want to get into more of your time at Princeton. Would you say that it was challenging academically for you? It was more natural for you? It was just a combination of both? And it was just something that you never really had to do anything to out of yourself to be so successful at Princeton? Um, I think overall, uh, Princeton was extremely challenging academically, both when it comes to uh, the coursework that I pursued and the research that I ended up conducting. Um, I think what I will say is that I did notice fairly early in my Princeton experience that um, several of the courses that, um, let's say, many people would often um, 
struggle with or complain about did come easy to me to a certain extent. Um, so I think of courses like um, Ghost 126, Ghost C26, Matt 201. Um, I came from a very or a relatively strong math background coming into Princeton. I wasn't the type of a student who had competed at the IMO or anything like that, but um, had competed in a bunch of, um, you know, national level math competitions had done decently well in those. Um, so I think that that preparation helped me a lot, especially during that first year, where in addition to Princeton's like academic rigor, you also have to ad adapt to just like this idea of like living on your own, living in residence, which is you know, quite, quite significant. Um, but that being said, like there were a suite of courses that really pushed me at Princeton, um, you know, to an extent that I'd never been pushed to before. As off the top of my head, I think of um, so you know, writing seminar was you know quite quite the experience. I feel like as as is the case for many of us, um, I started off chemical engineering and I took the thermodynamics class my freshman year, and that class was a rough one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and even though, even though I ended up being Orphe in the end, um, Orph 309, so the intro probability class, um, was also a class that really, um, you know, tried me. Um, so there were lots of, lots of late, lots of, lots of late nights, lots of sleepless nights, lots of bonding with um, classmates over, um, you know, what seemed to be impossible problem sets. Um, yeah, so I think that um, that's more or less how I would describe the academic experience from my perspective. Yeah, and honestly, I'm glad that you said that there were some challenges for you, because if you would have been like, oh, it all came so easily to me, that would have made people listen and be like, OK, maybe it's actually unachievable to be valedictorian because it's something that has to come so easily to me. So I'm glad that at least you, you're a human like the rest of us and you went through those struggles and everything. But two things that you yeah, sorry, two things that you mentioned first with I, I also started uh, CB, so chemical and biological engineering didn't even make it as far as thermodynamics or whatever. I literally lasted maybe half a semester. And then I was like, okay, this is, this isn't for me. And a big part of that was Coast 126, like you mentioned. And so for everyone listening, Coast 126 is, that's our intro computer science class. And it is market as, it is marketed as an intro computer science class, but that could not be further from the truth. And when I tell you, I struggled so badly in that class. And people always say computer science is either for you or it's not for you. It was definitely not for me. And so, yeah, that was just one of those classes where my first semester at Princeton, I was doing that. I was doing math. I was doing physics and I was doing chemistry. And I was like, okay, this, this combination is not going to make my journey here very enjoyable or pleasant at all. And freshman year was not pleasant because of it and quickly realized I need to switch out. But again, good to know that you also went through your struggles like most of us do. Some of us, you know, we figure out whatever, whatever path it is that we want to do. You said you switch your major. Most people end up switching your major. So there's many different paths to being valedictorian and to not being valedictorian. <laughs> Absolutely. No, could not, could not stress that enough. I think that, um, that, that is a question I get a lot in, you know, one form or another was, was Princeton just, you know, super easy for me. And the answer is it, it, it really was not. And, um, you know, all of my close friends can attest to that. Yeah. And so next more, just trying to unpack your Princeton experience specifically, um, your the way you spent your time and the balance that you had is something that I'm very curious about because another I guess a stereotype that you would hear about people who are getting perfect grades and are valedictorians is they never leave their room they're hermits they're studying all the time but from what I remember I was like I would see you at the gym I'd see you at black box so you were a social enough person 
how were you able to break down your time and what would you say you, how are you able to, yeah, basically that, how were you able to distribute your time amongst a lot of things? So you weren't a hermit only. Right. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, I think in my experience, Princeton was, you know, Princeton was many things. And one of them was a crash course in time management. Um, you know, I thought I did a decent job at organizing myself coming into Princeton, but that was you know really not the case. And I think that, you know, what I realized is that um, I think it can be a very personal decision, but at least with respect to how I think about how I spend my time and how I kind of structure my life, it is really important for me to you know, both have, you know, personal time to myself, which largely consists of you know, working out at the gym, which is, you know, why I would see you and Dylan all the time. Um, and also, you know, just spending time with, you know, close friends doing things that aren't strictly related to, to coursework. Um, those are two things that um, you know, I think were really important just for my own mental health and also for, you know, time spent at the gym and time spent, you know, hanging out um, on like non-principle related things ultimately just helped me focus better when it did come to sitting down and actually hammering out a problem set or, or working on a Princeton focused research project. Another thing I will say too, is that um, one thing that I had kind of been told coming into Princeton and I quickly like realized was in fact true during my first year was just this idea of, um, so listen, at, at Princeton, we have an opportunity to, um, you know, share a space uh, with, you know, some incredible, incredible peers, arguably, you know, the brightest people in the world. And I think that a lot of the learning that I ended up doing while uh, on Princeton's campus came from just conversations I had with, with other peers. And these weren't even necessarily like, people who ended up being very close friends of mine. These are people who, um, you know, I just had the fortune of meeting and I had the fortune to learn from their kind of incredibly unique experience. And I think realizing that um, was another big driver to making me want to be sure that, you know, as best as possible, I spent a lot of my time on campus just meeting some of the other people that I got to share campus with. Um, so yeah, I guess that was a bit about how I thought about my time management or personal life on, on campus. Yeah, and again, a couple more things with what you just said, because I couldn't agree more, especially when it comes to the first and last thing, first being time management. That was one thing where, again, in high school, you kind of get through it. We all get into Princeton. We're like, okay, we, we, we have it all figured out. We, we know how to do this. Princeton's going to be a cakewalk. You get there, and then you have the power to set your own schedule quite literally. You can or can't show up to class. No one is going to come looking for you. There's all these extracurriculars. You want to have a social life, and you're like, okay, these are 65 things that I want to do in a 24-hour period, seven days a week. How do I make it all happen while also getting sleep, getting good grades, doing it all? And so everyone has their own little piece of time where the, the you, everyone finds their own journey to managing finding how to manage their time best. Mine, I wasn't able to get there until probably halfway through my freshman spring. So everyone has their own individual timeline, but when you are able to figure out how to manage your time, it really, really does make a world of a difference. And then another thing is <clears throat> for anyone listening out there who, again, like I mentioned before, thinks that the only way to be successful academically is to only study 24 seven. It's very refreshing to hear that, again, valedictorian of Princeton University, he works out. He has his fun. He's not a hermit. So I've never subscribed to the opinion that there's only one way to do things and be successful academically, and that's to just study, study, study. And so again, this is just helping my my own narrative that I am all all for fun. It's, you can work hard and play hard and still do both. And then lastly, um, the ability to or or the occurrence that you said of learning outside the classroom. Because I one thing that I've stressed so importantly is that. 
in my four years at Princeton, I learned the most every single summer time, which was time outside the classroom. And then also when I'm on campus, when I'm having these one-on-one conversations with people in eating clubs, in dining halls, in just whatever setting. So there's there's never a, a time for you to sort of let up because when you're outside the classroom, there's still so much so much knowledge to be gained. So yeah, just again, very, very good advice and things that I've I've thought about myself too, that it's good to just hear someone else, someone else reiterate a little bit. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything that you just said really does resonate with me. And I think just on that one point about, you know, there being multiple paths that you can take to, to, to achieving anything. I think that, um, so um, one thing that I have noticed is that I've had a lot of, so there are a lot of people uh, I met and I got to know on campus very well through methods that had like, or through means that had nothing to do with like academic coursework or research. Um, So like, I think to like a lot of the people that I'd often play like pick up basketball with say, I actually ran into a couple of them over the weekend. Um, I spent, spent Juneteenth in New York and, um, it was the first time I'd seen them since we all left campus and they kind of came up to me and they said, oh, wow, Nick, like, you know, we had no idea that, um, you know, you spent so much time like focusing on academics. You kind of knew you like, <laughs> on like the basketball court. And so it's kind of cool to, you know, uh, to have this like refreshing narrative of like, oh, that guy we play pickup basketball with um, having this role. And I think that's those types of conversations I've, I've have been um, somewhat of a commonality. And I think that those have actually been quite, quite refreshing. And it's, it's so funny and crazy how that happens at Princeton. I've also had the same thing, not for me being valedictorian people, like because I play a lot of basketball, but there's no other side to it. There's no, like, you're so smart. It's like, um, there's some people who you see going so hard on nights out at the eating clubs and you're like, oh, that person's a Shapiro. That person is this, that person is that. You're like, that same person who I was just seeing do all that. And for me, that is what I love so much because again, life should be about that balance and working hard and playing hard. <clears throat> Um, so then uh, taking it back to 2020 and more about the mindset of COVID disrupting your college experience, because class of 2020, um, you guys were the class that that was the OG COVID class where you didn't get the last month and a half, two months of your college experience. How disappointed were you, one, to not be able to close out your college experience like you wanted? And then two, when you found out you're valedictorian, how disappointed were you to initially not be able to give that speech in person and be able to sort of enjoy the fruits of your labor at the end of your college experience the way you thought you would have been able to your whole life? Um, it was, you know, really, um, it was really hard. Um, there's no question that I was looking forward to spending those last several months on campus, especially after my thesis would have been in with my, you know, close squad, with my friends, with, you know, just the senior class celebrating the time that we'd spent together on campus, um, looking forward to that first opportunity to formally walk out of the gates after having graduated and not being able to do any of that um, was really rough. And not only that, at least in my personal case, um, since I was back home in Canada, um, I couldn't really visit most of my friends from college um, even, you know, in terms of, let's say, like making like an informal like weekend trip. So that was certainly, certainly uh, very unexpected and a tough challenge to deal with. But at the end of the day, um, I think that uh, Princeton's community, certainly my class here, understood that the extreme changes that had to be adopted were, you know, fundamentally required to best respond to the, you know, truly, um, you know, unprecedented nature of the situation we found ourselves in. I think that I was actually quite, 
impressed and uplifted by how uh, both, you know, my friends and people in my class here and people in Princeton's community more broadly were able to maintain a sense of community in the remote environment that ensued, um, that ensued, you know, March 2020 undergrads being kicked off campus. Regarding not being able to kind of first deliver my speech on campus, that was also a, that was also an experience that kind of made my being valedictorian not kind of really feel real, if that makes sense, or not truly register in some sense. Like, you know, I recorded my speech sitting down at my kitchen table, like you know, <laughs> I was eating breakfast. Yeah. Um, no, 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 no big, no big deal there. Um, and even when I then saw the recording play during the virtual ceremony they were given, it still did not really feel real. Um, so that's why, I guess that's one of the reasons that made you know, this past May so special when we were able to go back on campus and actually experience that ceremony in person. Yeah, and that leads right into my next question. Was this past May <clears throat> able to give you the perfect amount, or not perfect, just a certain amount of closure of your Princeton and college experience? I think it gave an incredible amount of closure, um, both from the perspective of being able to reconnect with a lot of the other members of my class after you know, more than two years off campus away from each other, being able to walk out of the gates, uh, being able to share that moment with uh, my family. I think that I've always maintained that graduations are mostly for families, but I will say after this experience, I, I, I do still believe they're primarily for families, but I did realize how much it meant to me as well, having had to wait two years to go through that moment. Um, and returning to campus, I think after those two years was also um, a really marking experience. Um, certainly induced a lot of nostalgia. I visited a lot of my old dorms, um, said hello to a lot of my old professors. Um, and I think gave me a better appreciation of how significant a role my time in college and my time at Princeton has played in my life so far and will you know, undoubtedly continue to play. Um, so overall, very grateful that we had that opportunity. Yeah, and it's it's. I'm glad to hear that the in-person ceremonies two years later were, were able to have that effect. Because initially, I, honestly, I was skeptical about if a lot of people would come back two years later from your class. And if it was more for a photo op or if it was actually going to provide a right amount of closure. But from speaking to you now and some, from speaking to some of my other friends in the class of 2020, it sounds like it was able to actually replicate what would have what seemed like an almost authentic experience for you guys which I'm I'm also glad to hear and I will also say that on the on the subject of graduations being for family as someone who again I was lucky enough to have my senior year go by pretty normally interestingly enough for me graduation wasn't the most like emotional piece of it for me it was the weeks leading up to it starting with when I turned in my thesis and I think because the thesis is the thing that from the moment you know you're coming to Princeton, you're like, that is the one major hurdle that you need to cross. And so for me, it wasn't until after I turned that in that I was like, wow, okay. I started doing a lot of reminiscing. I started getting a little, emo little emotional. And then at actual graduation, those three days, I was kind of like, this is more for my family than it is than it is for me. So I'm, I'm just, again, again, I was curious to see, see how people look at that because there is no right or wrong way to do things. Everyone goes through their own emotional journey at, at their own time. Truly, truly. Yeah. <clears throat> and so now back to the the whole Twitter aspect and, and you having to you getting on social media. One of the coolest things that I was seeing is 
the amount of people who tweeted at you and congratulations. And I'm just going to rattle off a, a, a short list here. Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Justin Trudeau. And those are just the ones that I was able to see from a quick scroll through your timeline. Is there anyone that I'm missing? And which of those were the most surreal to you? Um, I think that of the people who tweeted directly at me, I think those are the people that come to mind off the top of my head. Um, they were all surreal in their own way. Um, I think that this was very much happening during a time when I was still focused on like handling, handing in my final projects. Um, I don't think I had any final exams that semester. So because of that, I just had several final projects I had to be turning in. Um, I think the thesis was already in at this point. Um, and then there was also the further backdrop of, um, you know, me receiving an insane number of media requests to give, to give interviews to various news channels. Um, so I actually was very grateful to have the communications team at Princeton helping me manage a lot of this inbound. In particular, they set up um, little Twitter uh, filter to kind of filter through all of the tweets that were adding me. Um, so they were the they were the folks who all, who always flagged these these tweets. And I think that um, you know no question that Michelle Obama, such a distinguished Princeton alum, um, you know very much a person that I look up to. Um, you know absolutely loved uh, reading her book Becoming and learning about both her time at Princeton and her time beyond that. No question that you know that tweet was one of the ones that hit closest to home. I'm seeing Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, I'm a proud Canadian, um, for anyone who does not know, um, seeing that um, happen was really incredible and almost full circle because I've actually had the chance to meet, uh, you know, Mr. Prime Minister Trudeau before um, when I was much younger, I think I was around the age of 12 or 13. Um, so that was truly incredible. Kamala Harris, um, you know, Vice President of the United States, <laughs> first Black woman to hold the position, like, <laughs> absolutely insane. <laughs> um, and those are all tweets that I've kind of like, you know, saved and always look to every now and then when I do want kind of further sources of inspiration or further sources of motivation. Yeah. And Michelle Obama, I always, first of all, I had her brother, Craig Robinson on, and he's going to be a part of this series. And ever since I started the podcast, I was like, there's two dream Princeton guests that I want to have on. It's Michelle Obama and Jeff Bezos for whatever. Those are the two that I want to have on. So I'm just putting, putting that in the ether for when this podcast becomes so popular that she'll have to say, <laughs> have to say yes, yes to the request. And did anyone reach out through any other means to say congratulations or, or not really? Um, yeah, so, um, you know, a handful of, of other people did as well. So um, I, I know you had, um, you had uh, Governor Phil Murray, I believe on a- Phil Murphy, Phil Murphy. Phil, yeah. Phil Murphy, Phil Murphy, sorry. Yeah, um, yeah so he, he um, gave me a phone call actually. Wow. And we chatted over the phone for, for a bit, which was, which was wonderful. Um, the Governor General of um, Canada wrote me a letter. The Governor General of the Bahamas wrote me a letter. So also for anyone who doesn't know, I also have proud roots in the Bahamas and in Jamaica. Um, and then I also uh, received a letter from um, Sonia Sotomayor, which was like insane. Um, wow. I think those are some of the other people who reached out off the top of my head. Wow. Okay. And then just staying on the line of the celebrities loving you, um, you were included in the music video for Pharrell and Jay-Z song, Entrepreneur. First question, how did you learn about that opportunity? <laughs> So it was actually quite haphazard. I got an email from 
uh, individual who I believe was either the artistic or the creative director for the video, or actually no, was an individual who was who was the assistant to the creative director for the video, and they wrote me this a kind of very brief email, a very little context, very little like um, let's say. Um, let's say no logo, like no, let's say link to a LinkedIn profile. So very little information I could use to, to do diligence on. Very, very, like very much seemed like very sus. All right. Um, and it just so happens that, um, so my sister, older sister, Anastasia, four years older than me, she's absolutely incredible. She wears many hats, one of which is um, you know, doing a lot of work in the performing arts space as a singer and as an actress. Um, so anything like celebrity slash Hollywood related, I always like run by her because like she's my source of diligence. So I'm like, all right, hey, like, what do you think of this email? Like, you know, should I answer this? Like, should I not answer this? What's going on here? She said, okay, definitely answer. So I answered. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think after an exchange of three or four emails, I started to believe it was kind of like a legitimate inquiry uh, for me to, yeah, for me to be a part of the video. Um, I think I'm only in it for like a brief, like two or three second clip. Um, they had me filming for, I think, two and a half hours. Uh, <laughs> that it was is like so quite, funny. <laughs> it was quite funny. They just had me walking up and down the streets of Montreal. They sent a, uh, a film crew uh, to record it because, again, this was during COVID. So they weren't kind of flying anyone. Um, they weren't flying the talent, I guess, to a central like filming location. Um, so yeah, I had like a film crew following me around the streets of Montreal for like two and a half hours. Like <laughs> no, that's, that's hilarious. Cause people watching are probably like, Oh, this man's about to have like a whole documentary on him. And they're like, wait a minute, two, two, three seconds, which first of all, yeah. still, still absurdly cool and very, very insane. But it's just funny how that works out that so much of it gets left, left on the cutting floor. And so did you have, so, and also hilarious, the thing that you might've just ignored that email. Like what if your sister wasn't that person to be able to do that due diligence, you would have been like, I'm just going to ignore <laughs> this. But were you, were, did you have any contact at all with Pharrell or Jersey? Unfortunately, I did not. Um, oh, definitely my biggest, <laughs> my biggest regret. Um, yeah, so I think I, I FaceTimed with the creative director. Um, but I did not get to chat with, with Jay-Z or Pharrell. But that's not, yet. Yeah. not yet. Not yet. I was, I was about to say, it's definitely on the timeline, on the horizon. Fingers crossed. Exactly, exactly. And that also just makes me think, if things would have been different without COVID, like if you would have been flown somewhere, if they would have been there, just as you think. But again, we are yeah. the path. The paths everyone's on. I'm, I'm. I wouldn't be surprised if your paths or paths your path is crossing with Pharrell and Jay Z sometime, sometime in the near future. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then again, last question on this, just celebrity row. Um, out of the blue, you post a picture with Robert Downey Jr. about a year ago. Two questions: How did that come about? And is there anything that you're working on with him? Of course. So what I will say is, so on the first question, how did that come about? Um, it's actually kind of, there were like some similarities with the Pharrell and Jay-Z story. So again, like I received this very cryptic email from, you know, someone who I think claimed to be affiliated with Robert Downey Jr. Typos in the message, you know, no logo. Again, very sus. Um, but at this point, I think that I'd already had like the whole Pharrell Jay-Z experience. So I was like, all right, like, you know, let me, let me not kind of, um, take this for granted and let me kind of explore this a bit. Um, so reached out to, or rather respond to this person who turned out to be, uh, one of Robert's executive assistants. And she kind of just said that, oh, um, you know, he'd seen about me, he'd read about me in the news, thought my story was very interesting and loved to chat. 
Um, then not much else happened for like several months. And then, so I think the initial contact would have been around like June, 2020 or so. And then fast forward to the fall, like September or so. Um, now I get an email from someone who claims to be Robert Downey Jr. saying, oh, hey, like, you know, glad you're interested in talking. Like, you know, let's FaceTime. I said, oh, okay, all right, whatever. Here's my number. Um, just called me. Still kind of not truly like, you know, believing what's going on. And then lo and behold, he FaceTimes me. I answer and it's in fact, like it's Iron Man. It's Robert Downey Jr. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you really just called me? That's crazy. Um, and no, it was absolutely incredible speaking with him. So his like, I think his, so he very much brought his personality to the role of Tony Stark and to the role of Iron Man, which I think is the hallmark of, of, of all of the greatest act, uh, actors. Um, so, you know, talking to him was truly just like I was talking to Tony Stark, which is, um, you know, absolutely insane. Insane. Um, RIP, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> RIP, RIP. Um, and um, yes, no, we had a great conversation and he offered to, to, to host me um for for a meal you know whenever i was kind of in the area so next time i was next time i was out in la um you know i, I hit him up um you know he offered to host me for lunch at at, at his home uh, him him and his wife susan and uh you know we just had we just had like some really uh some really nice conversations um to your to your second point or to your second question rather um so i think what what i will say is I guess I, I'll speak briefly about some of the things that are of greatest interest to some of the work that he's doing now. So um, he uh, runs this organization called the Footprint Coalition, which is one third um, nonprofit uh, grant issuing entity, one third like venture capital uh, entity, and one third like media entity to um, use his platform um, to you know push the type of messaging that he wants to push, which is in general a focus around. Uh, tech-enabled sustainability. So he's a very strong interest in investing in ventures that are focused on uh, tackling issues in, in sustainability and the climate crisis using innovative tech, um, which is kind of where I fit in as someone who is very much up to date with the frontier of technological innovation in certain sectors. And that's kind of, let's say, the reason that we ended up, you know, first getting together. Um, and that's all, that's all I'll say for now. Gotcha. Again, another one, another one of those things where in a few years we're going to look up and there's going to be some some major collaboration. I'm guessing. I'm, I'm hinting at that. I'm going to revisit this episode when the company goes public in a few years. <laughs> we'll have <laughs> just to do a, a part two. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. When again, this podcast just keeps growing and growing. But just a, a few more questions for you because I've already run over our, our time a little bit here. Um, but so just reeling it back into to education, I guess as a whole. I'm imagining that you had many options coming out of Princeton. Why did you why why did you decide that a PhD at MIT was the next logical step for you? Yeah, great question. So I guess I'll tackle that in two parts. First, why the PhD, and secondly, why MIT. Um, so why a PhD? Um, you know, listen, at my heart, I consider myself to be a technologist and an innovator, and whatever I or of, the, of, of my life's work, I do want a strong component of it to be pushing the technique of what's technologically feasible in the world in such a way that um, augments the quality of life that's accessible to most humans. And I felt like in order to best position myself to be able to drive that technological innovation, PhD level training would be absolutely invaluable. Um, so that's more or less the thought process that led myself to the PhD. And of course there were you know some other considerations like 
Um, you know, the fact that I had pursued some research experiences as an undergrad and in general had done decently well on them and realized that research was something that I enjoyed. Um, second part, why MIT? So there were a couple of reasons. I think first and foremost, uh, my advisor is what drew me to MIT. So I work with a professor by the name of Dimitri Bertsimas, who's an absolute legend in the field of operations research. Um, so call it the first half of Orphe, if you will. Um, and he is someone who is both interested in having me as a student, um, someone that I could learn, let's say PhD level research techniques from, but also equally important, someone that I could learn from, from the perspective of uh, being able to commercialize academic research and being able to build, um, let's say, um, technologically innovative ventures. So not only is he a tenured professor at MIT, he also has launched um, at least eight companies, three of which have had very successful exits, um, several of which he's still managing right now. And I think that I've been able to learn an incredible amount from him, both from the academic PhD perspective and also from the venture building perspective. Um, and then another consideration that was really important to me is that MIT is actually the university that effectively founded the field of operations research. So it started as a field during World War II um, by a group of physics professors at MIT that realized there were some interesting optimization problems that you could solve that would help in the allocation of, of, of supplies and resources to some of the allied forces that were fighting in the war. Um, and I think the last thing I would mention is just that after you know, spending four years at, at Princeton in the city of Princeton, I wanted to be in an actual city. So, Fair enough. And again, there, I asked that question knowing that for, from anyone from the outside looking and being like, it's a PhD at MIT. If you have that opportunity, why would you not do it? So obviously there's, there's no reason not to. But again, it's just good to, to hear your reasoning. And then just two, <clears throat> two last questions for you. Um, and the first one is kind of unrelated. Just one little thing that I've seen on your Instagram a little bit. Something called the Black Wealth Club. And I've seen it on your Instagram, but not really been able to get a good understanding of what that is. So could you just give a, an, an explanation of what, what exactly that is? Of course. Um... So the Black Wealth Club is a, a Canadian nonprofit that's focused on identifying emerging Black Canadian leaders and helping to equip them with skills to build wealth and to reinvest it in the Black Canadian community. Um, we were founded in November 2020 by um, a close friend of mine, um, Alexander Sonora, and a mentor of mine, uh, Paul Desmarais III, who is... Um, one of the uh, foremost um, fintech investors and asset managers in Canada. Um, and I think that the work that we do um, is really focused on you know, helping, to, helping to provide additional resources to Black Canadians um, across the professional spectrum. I'm really with this hope of helping to helping to um, you know, empower them and helping to facilitate their mission and their life work, um, which in large part relates to providing opportunities to the specific communities that they are a part of. We recently rebranded as the Afro-Descendant Leadership Alliance. Um, so you'll probably be seeing a lot more of that as opposed to, you'll, you'll be seeing a lot more ALA as opposed to BWC on my Instagram. But I guess that's like the brief on that organization. Gotcha. Perfect. And then I guess just the, 
the the perfect place to wrap up this first of all phenomenal podcast episode it's every single one of these that i've done you just learn so much and it's just such good content so thank you again for taking the time out but just as a place to end as i mentioned you as we've touched on you are again first black valedictorian in princeton's 275 year history even just being a valedictorian of princeton is so impressive in and of itself so for anyone listening who is either rising college freshman high school student who wants to go to an ivy league one or just any place of higher education what advice would you give them for being able to stay the course when things get difficult and being able to sort of just maximize their full potential in whatever field whatever school it is that they choose to wherever they choose to go great question i think that there are several pieces of advice i would offer First is um, be sure that you are able to find what you're passionate about. Um, and once you do find what you're passionate about, really be confident and have the courage to kind of pursue it to the best of your ability, given the opportunities that are available to you. Um, I think the second piece of advice I would give is to always remember your why when it comes to moments that are um, that are uh, difficult when it comes to those moments in time where you might not feel um, as motivated as, as at other times or as invigorated um, as, uh, as at other points. I think that remembering why you committed to pursuing an opportunity or pursuing an experience can often be that driver that takes you through those rough periods on the road. Um, and you know, third, a quote that you know, I think I've heard um, a lot might be overused, but is one that I've really taken to heart is just this idea of um, success being rented, not owned, and that rent being due every day. Um, you That's know, a bar. I, truly, truly, <laughs> truly, it is a bar. Um, you know, I think that it's very much in keeping with this idea of greatness being defined as being consistently good. At the end of the day, you need to deliver day in and day out. And if you deliver day in, day out consistently, you'll be absolutely flabbergasted by where that ends up taking you. Wow, that is a phenomenal place to put a button on this podcast episode. Nick, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time out. Um, this has been, again, I think it's interesting to hear your perspective because again, like I said, you in this alumni series that I'm doing, you're by far the youngest person that I've had on class of 20, actually not by far, actually no, Jesper's 20, 2019. So you are the youngest, but again, a very nice and fresh perspective. He's doing in the NFL, so very different from what you're doing. So it, you, you can never learn enough from speaking to different people. Everyone's going to bring something different to the so I've learned so much just by speaking with you here today. This I can't I can't wait to just get all this content out into the world. And yeah, thank you. Thank you again for coming on. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me. And it's been an incredible conversation. Really looking forward to the episode. Of course. And so thank you everyone for listening. This has been another episode of Go With the Flow. Enough is enough.